But I did actually explore a little bit the idea of monogamous dating. And I got to tell you, it's really fucking weird. (laughs) (laughs) It's not mono-hate. I have... Many monogamous friends, and I love them dearly, and some of them have wonderfully healthy healthy relationships that I envy. There are all these rules that I don't understand (laughs) and assumptions, and like the way people's profiles are written and what they're looking for is all different. And it just, it's very alien feeling to me. But first, a word from our sponsors. The Man Whore Podcast is sponsored by Halos and Sins, a sexy new video game designed to spice up your bedroom. Prepare to level up your character's sex skills, both in the game and IRL. Download it for free on Google Play today or at halosandsins.com. It's the vibrator that has no equal. And now, Motor Bunny offers their thrusting sex machine, the Motor Bunny Buck. Enjoy a fan whore discount at manwhorepod.com slash motorbunny or use promo code manwhore at checkout. Now let's get to the show. Welcome to the Man Whore Podcast. A message to the tweeters, the cheaters, and Republican ass eaters. Just stop. This is Billy Persida, and you're listening to the Man Whore Podcast. Welcome, welcome, folks. Uh, I I, uh, I need to lay some groundwork down before this week's episode with Eve Rickert. She is the owner of Thorntree Press and the co-author of More Than Two, A Practical Guide to Ethical Polyamory. Many of you have, have probably read it if, you are, if you're in the lifestyle. And you may also know that Franklin Vo is her co-author, yeah, last year I interviewed Franklin after a series of callouts and accusations of emotional abuse. If you want to learn more about that and the details, there there are several links in the show notes. <laughs> There's plenty to read. Short version is a lot of women from various decades of Franklin's life came forward with stories of very similar harmful behaviors. He got invited into an accountability process. You'll see in the links how engaged or not he was in that process. And uh, you can hear my two-part conversation with Franklin on episodes 339 and 340. Depending on how your podcast app organizes things, scroll back to July 2020. Uh, Even I exchanged emails and messages about the Franklin episodes uh, before doing this podcast. She wanted to do a phone call to kind of feel me out, kind of do a vibe check, because... She's read some things about me, and others in the sex-positive world have warned her about me. We talk quite a bit about that again. Don't worry, you'll, you'll hear about it, because, uh, you know, and that's why I got to address my internet history real quick. Some of y'all know about this. Some of y'all have shared you're tired of hearing about it, so I'll try to keep it concise. But back in 2015, I got into some Twitter fights that resulted in me harassing a few sex-positive personalities. Uh, namely Ella Dawson, Ashley Manta, and a woman who goes by Dirty Lola. It's uh, it's really embarrassing. You know, reading over the screenshots years later, I'm like, what the fuck was that? I said some nasty shit. There was there was so much anger and defensiveness. It's it's wild. And don't worry, I'm in therapy, I'm trying to figure that out. And of course, beyond me feeling embarrassed about shitty behavior 
my behavior caused these women unnecessary harm. I also acted like an asshole to people who tried to get involved and help. People like uh, Cooper Beckett, Dr. Jana, Kenneth Play, and some others. I eventually burned those bridges too. I feel pretty sorry about that as well. And if, if you want to see just the worst of these screenshots, it's not in my best interest, but I put links in the show notes to their blog posts. I'm going to warn you, it's not pretty. Uh, you know, all I can do uh, at this point is, is try to do better today than yesterday and try to do better tomorrow than I did today. That was uh, that was all pretty public on Twitter and Facebook back then. So a, a lot of personalities in the sex positive world have some reasonable skepticism about me. Eve was one of them, which is why I really appreciate our conversations both on mic and off. Hey, and we didn't just talk about Twitter beef, right? We also talked about polyculture, experimenting with monogamy, hey, and how we talk about abuse. So I think this will be a good one. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, if you do enjoy it, seamless segue, we'd love to hear your thoughts and opinions on the topics of this episode, on the content of this episode, in the Champagne Room, which is our uh, super free, super sex positive, super fun Discord server. Uh, it's our Discord server that's now over 400 fan horse strong. So if you uh, need a digital space to connect with like-minded people, manhorpod.com slash Discord. Uh, another one of our wonderful fan whore communities is The Peep Show, which is a reward for all of my $10 and up fan whores on Patreon. Uh, the Peep Show, what is it? It's, it's, a, it's a fabulous thing. It is a group chat that's been running for, gosh, like four years now, maybe five years. And it's just a play. It's a group chat where we share nudes, gifts, and compliments all day, every day. It's an amazing place. Uh, and right now, I'm going to offer for the rest of December, all annual memberships can get a two-week free trial to The Peep Show. So if $10 a month seems a little pricey to you and you want to experiment with The Peep Show, okay, get yourself an annual membership at the 2 or $5 tiers and then shoot me an email or a message. We'll get you in there and, and you're welcome to come join us for the fun for a couple weeks. Who knows? You may just adjust your pledge to stay in it for the whole year. And you can become a member today and support this very problematic podcaster at patreon.com slash podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash podcast. Uh, before we get to Eve Rickett, we'll do a quick fan whore appreciation moment. Going to give a couple shout outs right now to new members. I want to give a shout out to Aaron Melhwish, Strutted Strutted, Kitty Kitty. You're looking good in the peep show. We're loving these lewds. You've, I, it's just, it's beautiful when we watch someone join the peep show and they send like kind of basic nudes. But then after like seeing what we do in there and chit-chatting and feeling more comfortable, people will start to kind of experiment. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna divulge what Aaron's showing, but Aaron has like stepped up their game. Very artsy, very purposeful, loving it, buddy. And I also want to give a shout out and a thank you to Sean Trader for supporting the podcast. Don't know what we're trading. Stonks, sheep, government secrets. I want in, man. Cut me in. Come on. Uh, thank you for being a member. Thanks for, for supporting the show. 
Uh, last but certainly not least, you know, you can always shoot me an email with your comments, your questions, your criticisms. That last one, gosh, it's always scary uh, to say, but yeah, I'm open to it. You can always reach me directly at manwhorepod at gmail.com. And now for Eve Rickert, uh, you know, tomorrow, actually, I've got a bonus episode coming out on Patreon where Eve and I talk specifically about emotional abuse. That'll be available to all $5 and up fan whores and, uh, you know, as well as over 200 bonus episodes. But for now, let's go get to know Eve Rickert. Are you looking to start a podcast? I am offering free consultations to anyone who hosts their show on Libsyn using my promo code BILLY. Yeah, podcasting is all the rage right now, okay? It's a huge deal. It's my full-time job. I do this for a living. What a lucky son of a bitch I am. And it could be you too. Podcasts are a great way to share personal stories, solve a murder, or market your business. Even Trader Joe's has a podcast. Free plug for them. (laughs) <laughs> Libsyn's customer support team has been with the Man Whore Podcast every step of the way, and you won't regret hosting your RSS feed over there. So if you use promo code Billy at Libsyn.com or click the link in the show notes, you can send me a screenshot and I'll give you a free 20-minute consultation call for all your podcasting questions. Again, use promo code B-I-L-L-Y at Libsyn. L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com or click the link in the show notes. So I love games. Do you love games? I know you love games because sluts love a good horny board game night. Enter Truth or Dare meets Dungeons and Dragons. Yes, Halos and Sins is a sexy new video game designed to bring the spice back into the bedroom and it's free to download. Halos and Sins brings all of your favorite nerdy D&D elements. Dice rolling, leveling up your character, special skills. Hey, can I be a devil with a penchant for fisting? I fucking hope so. You know, sometimes it's easy to fall into a sexual routine with a partner. Even if it's a great routine, it still makes both of you come. It could get a little boring after a while. You gotta mix it up here and there. And Halos and Sins is a really fun couples game. That'll get the bottom on the top. It'll get the top on the bottom. It'll turn the fucker into the fuck. And, you know, it turns the laundry room into a fuck palace. A lot of fucks going on here. You get the idea? Halos and sins equals fuck. (laughs) Ing. Fucks. Fuckers. All the variations of fuck that are positive. That's what Halos and sins is about. Download Halos and sins today on Google Play or check them out at halosandsins.com. Now let's get to the show. So my name's Eve Rickard. Before we start, I want to acknowledge that I'm joining from the unceded territories of the Lekwungen and Saanich people on the west coast of Canada. You, you know, you co-wrote what a lot of people take to be like one of the, the biggest like polyamorous resources out there, even if like I, I know you feel a little differently about more than two now than you did before. I was, I just, I, when I think about you, I think about how your work is so inextricably tied to like also a man that you were with that you are no longer with that like there's been trauma about. And I was like, that's got to be tough, like to want to per, like pursue anything else. You could write a whole other non monogamy book. And no matter what interview you do, just like I'm doing in this moment, it will, like, you will be asked about that. And like, yeah. is that tough for you? Sometimes. Um, I mean, there are a lot of ways in which I really 
resent the sort of reverberating effects through my life of that relationship and everything to do with it. And, and, you know, having my best known creative work tied up with that is certainly one of them. Um, I have been trying to gradually move away from that as sort of the thing that defines me. Uh, and I know that that's going to take a long time. Uh, I've been leaning a lot more into my, um, my professional work as a publisher. Yeah, you know, something, um, the uh, Kali Tal, who was one of the women who conducted the interviews that were published, um, at the end of my testimony, one of the things she said to me that has really stuck with me is don't become a professional survivor. Because there's a way like that I could have gone in that direction. And you look at, you know, it's like, you get into this, like, you want to tell your story, you want to help other people, suddenly more and more people want to talk to you about it, you get more interviews, and then suddenly that's all you are. And I really, like, I'm so glad she just said those words to me, because um, I realized that that could have been where I was heading, and I really didn't want to go there. Like, I want to reach a point in my life where it is behind me, and I've moved on. Yeah, you know, because there are people who like they they become the professional survivor, and then sometimes it's easy to kind of. I feel like it could be easy to fall into that, um, getting kind of caught up in in a in some sort of a momentum where you just go like, I guess this is what they want to talk about. This is what they want to hear from me, and then you you may not even realize what's going on till it's you know too late. For me, when I was both getting out of the situation and trying to start understanding it and recovering from it, the help I got from other people who had been through similar things was so crucial to me and the ability to hear other people's stories. And so then I felt like I had an obligation to tell my own story and help other people in the same way. Um, In some ways before I'd even had a chance to really give a lot of thought to what that would mean for me long term. Um, and so extracting myself a little bit from that sense of obligation and saying, you know, I'm also allowed to have a different identity and live my life uh, has yeah. been, you know, part of my own healing, I think. Yeah. Did, did do you still do or were you doing uh, in the immediate aftermath any sort of poly non-monogamy work writing speaking engagements is that something you've drifted away from is that something you want to go back to you know i've drifted away from it um are you even still poly did the whole thing make you go like fuck it let's try that weird monogamy thing they're doing (laughs) so uh that's interesting i um i did go through a phase where i was like do i really want to keep doing this um and i mean there was a whole good two years where I was just not dating. Um, I was like, I need to just take a full break from all of that. And then right as I was starting to think, oh, I want to start dating again, the pandemic happened. (laughs) So, um, but I did actually um, explore a little bit the idea of monogamous dating. And I got to tell you, it's really fucking weird. (laughs) (laughs) I've I'm sorry for all the mono hate that's been happening recent in weeks on this podcast. Okay, Julia, I'm looking at you, hate. but it's <laughs> it's not mono hate. I, I I have many monogamous friends, and I love them dearly, and some of them have wonderfully healthy healthy relationships that I envy. Um, but I just don't the there's like this whole having been out of that world for a really long time now. I mean, um, the last time I dated in a monogamous setting was in my mid 20s early 20s before i got married and um 
there are all these rules that I don't understand <laughs> and assumptions and like the way people's profiles are written and what they're looking for is all different. And it just, it, it, it's very alien feeling to me. And um, so then I thought, well, maybe, I mean, certainly I need to date people who use language the same way I do and have sort of the same cultural assumptions that I do. And maybe there are other people who have been non-monogamous who maybe are veering away from that. But then I started to realize like, no, I'm still non-monogamous. Like I can't ever, I'm never going to be able to sort of fit my relationships in the way that I love into in between the lines that I'm supposed to in a monogamous setting. But I don't consider myself polyamorous. Now I consider myself consensually non-monogamous mm-hmm. and relationship anarchist, mainly because I just, uh, I think there's a set of cultural assumptions around polyamory. Polyamory itself is its own subculture that I don't feel like I fit in with very well anymore. Mm-hmm. And educating, I just, I have no desire to do ENM or CNM educating right now, except yeah. for the extent to which when I want to talk about abuse, I can be helpful to other survivors. So I, I, in my little bit of research, I, you've been, you've identified as non-monogamous for most of your dating, like since you pretty much started being a dating human, right? Like even in high school? Well, it's, I mean, in high school, I was absolutely non-monogamous, but I didn't know that that's what I was doing. Uh I was even in like a kind of a weird little triad for a while. But we didn't know that's what it was and we didn't have a way to talk about that. So it ended up turning into a bunch of conflict that maybe it didn't need to if we'd had a framework for allowing that. But um, I did uh, in my in my 20s and up to my marriage, um, I was in monogamous relationships because that was all I really understood was available to me. Um, and then it was really when my when I was married and had been married for a few years that my husband and I decided we were going to try non-monogamy. And like, how do you how do you view your non-monogamy now versus 10, 20 years ago? I was much more inclined towards sort of kitchen table poly, friends with all my metamors, you know, big happy family polycule kind of thing. Um, I, I had a, a nesting partner. Um, I right now in my life very much lean towards solo polyamory. Uh, don't intend to have a nesting partner again, uh, at least in any kind of foreseeable future at this stage of my life. Um, very much more inclined towards parallel polyamory. Uh, almost compartmentalized polyamory where I just, because the group dynamic uh, and the stress and processing and um, of dealing with the whole network. uh, I mean, it was really the group dynamic that became so damaging to me. Uh, That wasn't the only thing that became damaging to me, but it was a big part of the damaging parts of my poly relationships. And so I just don't want to deal with that. I just want to have my relationships with people. Yeah. So, which well, isn't like, to say like I I want to be friendly with my metamors, but uh, I I don't want to be like it is my partners and my lovers' responsibility to manage their time, manage their conflict, manage whatever, and I just don't want any part of that. It can it can be a lot. Was there a particular turning point outside of Franklin that that caused that that shift for you? In a lot of ways, I think that was the turning point. Um, And I think that maybe it was also that, um, um, you know, I I do have a couple of things in my life that have developed into, you know, 
again, don't want to put a label on these things. They don't really have a label right now, but sort of intimate heart relationships that are certainly more than friendship. And um, those largely developed during COVID when we were all kind of isolated. And uh, so these close relationships developed uh, in this very individualized way. Yeah. So that might have been part of it. I, I don't know. And also um, um, getting divorced and buying my own home. And um, I I live with two other divorced women and it's wonderful. <laughs> um, is is Tuesday the- night like, you know, shit on the X night? Like, I feel like you, <laughs> that could be like a dinner theme. Uh, we don't spend a lot of time uh, shitting on the exes. I mean, we've mostly moved on. But like instead I mean, of like instead of giving thanks, like just like around the table on Tuesdays, <laughs> it's like we all just name one thing we're grateful we don't have to put up with that guy with anymore. <laughs> uh, we we do not do that. <laughs> but um, but I but I will say that divorced women make fantastic housemates. Oh. So I'm pretty happy with the situation where I am now, yeah. and don't really have a big desire to change it i'm also super incredibly busy in my professional life so yeah and this was this was a this is a question i forget if i explicitly asked but it's definitely i thought of um back when i i interviewed franklin but similarly like you know after more than two comes out does that like muddy up your dating like is is does it almost become like this weird power differential that you have to be cognizant of where however you are must be the right way to do things it's eve rickard oh god no i don't think so <laughs> like i don't think that there's that power differential um I, I will say that it's been a really really long time since i've tried to date anyone who was remotely new to Mm non-monogamy. So that hasn't been a thing that's come up. And I think also it's pretty well known now that I've had some, you know, not great experiences in non-monogamy myself. Uh, I I would say that the, the asymmetry that I struggle with the most, it's not in terms of like me knowing how to do things the right way or not, or them because I got, you know, I screwed up so badly, but like, it's the asymmetry in uh, intimacy, in knowledge, because so much of my personal story is out there and available for anyone Mm -hmm. to read, that when I meet a new person, I I don't know how much they know about me. I don't know what assumptions they make about me, because of what they've read, how they think I operate. I also keep a lot to myself that I never talk about. And that is like, really only for my very close friends. But even then, it's like, with a new developing relationship, it takes a long time for us to develop the trust where I learn as much about them as they have already learned about me in some cases. And I, that is consistently hard to navigate. I can very much relate. <laughs> I bet. You know, um, you know, you mentioned like, you know, not really identifying with like kind of the poly culture, even if you Consider yourself some kind of blend of being able to manage multiple romantic or heart connection relationships. You know, wh- what do you mean by that? The culture that's built around poly, which again, I think a good chunk of that culture has come out from more than two. That's a good question. Um, I feel like I actually largely disconnected a couple of years ago um, and have put some work into kind of putting that behind me and not thinking about it. And so um, I, I, 
I'm afraid that anything I'll say might not be current to what is what the conversations are in the various communities right now or what's going on mm-hmm. um, because I've kind of checked out of it for a while. Um, I will say, you know, f- I got, got an interview request recently and I, when I asked what they wanted to talk about, they were like, Oh, just basic E&M stuff, you know, like rules and hierarchy versus anarchy and, you know, opening from a couple. And what else did they say? I can't remember. But I was just like, I really don't want to talk about any of that. Like I, it, I don't want to think about rules and hierarchy and, uh, and, and then this goes more towards my, like the way I'm veering in this very uh, relationship anarchist and solo poly direction is like the amount of sort of group dynamics. I think I've become kind of averse to. Yeah. Um, You're done with board is game a big night. Part of it. <laughs> I love board game night. <laughs> but, and, and even, you know, what's funny is, um, one of my closest friends right now where I live is my ex-husband's ex-girlfriend. So neither one of us are with him anymore. But she does come over for board game night often. <laughs> and that's from back from my, when I was, like, that's from my kitchen table poly days. And that's a relationship that I very much value uh, and has been super important to, like, helping me stabilize in a new city. I also think that the focus on... The reason I call myself consensually non-monogamous and not ethically non-monogamous is that the idea of ethics often gets turned into a blunt instrument. So instead of saying, you know, we're here building intimacy and trying to figure out how to meet each other's needs and care for each other, it's like we use this idea of what is ethical behavior or not to like put ourselves up on a on a um uh, like get the upper hand on a partner or a metamor or, mm-hmm. or someone else in our polycule. I see that happening in the groups a lot still. Um, I see honestly what looks like a lot of bullying to me from of people who are really hurting and I really don't like that. So that's another thing that has kind of driven me away. Something I struggle with now in not, my non-monogamous relationships is the feeling that there are sort of unwritten rules. <laughs> and I try to pull away from that. Um, and really just, you know, um, a friend of mine has been, um, has been writing about some of her, uh, negative experiences in polyamory. And one of the things she brings up is how difficult it is to ask for like spontaneous support, to ask for a change of plans without feeling like there's a cost, like there's a punishment waiting for you. Like you've just spent some kind of points, and, you know, in networks of friendships, we don't really have that. But somehow when the relationships become romantic, it's suddenly like, you know, and, and I I don't like to feel like I'm sort of bargaining with my feelings or yeah. bargaining with my needs or like, if is I, this serious enough for me to use these tokens mm-hmm. to get right. this last minute shift change? Because you can't mm-hmm. do it all the time. So is this the time I'm going to use it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I have have found is that after so many years and years of doing that, I don't know how to not do it. Like I have become so disconnected with my own from my own feelings in a lot of ways and my own needs that I don't even know how to talk about them Um, because I'm so even when I have no reason to think that I am bargaining or that there are hidden rules or hidden punishments, I just expect them. And so I'm sort of like, like in advance, 
uh, subconsciously navigating uh, a con- it's like I see and, and this is also I think a, a lingering effect of long-term emotional abuse as well is like you learn to to see the possibility of conflict is like five miles down the road and you start taking the detours <laughs> before way before then so you don't ever get there but that means that like it often means squelching needs and squelching feelings before you even really get a chance to feel them. Um, and so when I want to feel them, I sometimes just can't. I mean, that's what I took from Avengers Endgame as well, where like, sure, if we want to avoid this over here in the timeline, if we splinter mm-hmm. off too much, we're just going to have other fucking issues in the <laughs> other splinters. How about we deal with this conflict when we get to this conflict? Um, I'm glad we heard the same thing there. No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, what, what were some of these, um, these like unwritten rules that you were really having a hard time with when, or you were running into when you, dare I say, experimented with monogamous dating? So let me think about it again. This was a couple years ago. I don't have a clear memory of it. Okay. Um, but I will tell you one, one kind of experiment that I looked into was I actually, uh, considered signing up with a matchmaking firm, um, like an executive matchmaking firm, because <laughs> I know, <laughs> um, because it just seemed like it would take a lot of the work out of online dating. Like, let me just pay someone else to find the good matches for me and do the vetting and set up the date. And then I just, you know, go and meet the pre-selected people. And that, at that time for me, was really appealing. <laughs> so I interviewed with like three of them and they were all super keen to sign me up. One of them, but I was also pretty clear that like at that, I mean, I knew that most of the people going to those firms were probably going to be people who wanted monogamy, but that there would be people probably who would also be open to open relationships. And mm. at the time I wasn't totally clear on what flavor and on monogamy I still wanted. Like, did I want monogamish or like, so, um, so I would bring that up and, you know, one of the per- people said, well, if you're going to bring, maybe don't bring that up on the first date, like wait until <laughs> she was advising me to wait like three or four days. So I'm like, why would I do that? Oh why would I go on three or four dates to somebody who's going to want monogamy? And I don't, you know, so the idea that like there are crucial things that you should hide until down the road when like there's some investment and then you like that was I know that that is actually kind of a norm in a lot of monogamous relationships that I I think you don't see as much of in polyamory, or at least it's kind of frowned on a little bit. Um, yeah. And another one was one woman told me that um, she didn't think that she could find very many people who would be interested in dating bi women. And I'm like, what? Huh? <laughs> like, I, have, <laughs> huh? I mean, I've... Yeah, I've I've encountered, you know, biphobia and bi erasure in like the in queer circles, but I was really surprised that she thought that she would have a hard time finding like straight men who would be interested in dating a bi woman. Like- <laughs> and she <laughs> So, but apparently that's a thing. The one other thing that I noticed on um dating sites is just the the trend towards more sort of totalizing language, like, you know, looking for my better half or someone to complete me or things like that. It was just like, you know, you really don't tend to run into as much anymore in non-monogamous circles. So I found that a little bit off-putting. You said you took notes after our conversation, which was (laughs) 
What a what by the way, what a podcast gift you gave me. Uh you we we logged on to this Zencaster platform and you were like, uh, you know, I, I wasn't sure where you were gonna go. I had a guest, so I like I took notes after our phone call last night. I'm like, it's a gift from the pod gods. <laughs> an easy, an easy uh audible. Should I need one or or be curious enough about one? And if someone says they uh they have a page with notes about me, I'm like, I must know what these notes say. Uh <laughs> What, what, what were I guess, what, and this ties into that line from earlier where it was like it, it was about what I thought, Billy. What, what were some of the the thoughts afterwards while you were enjoying your meal kit preparation? Oh God. Um. Well, they, these were all just notes where if you ask questions about the, these on the podcast, I mm. wanted to make sure that I had uh, kind of my uh, points that I didn't want to forget about. Sure. Um, you had brought up, we'd had a, an email conversation even before mm-hmm. our call about giving each other the benefit of the doubt in yeah. various ways, right? And so on the call, you had thanked me for doing that with you. Uh, and that led into a conversation about things that happened in the more distant past for you that I might need to give you ben- a benefit of the doubt about. Mm. I didn't know if you were going to bring that up or not, Um mm. if you brought it up. I guess I'm bringing it up because they're, they're yeah, in my notes now. Let's <laughs> but, Um, I thought it might be interesting because you lived through that and I came to it much later and I found out about it because you interviewed Franklin and I was like, who's this guy? So I started asking some questions and went down a rabbit hole. Um, So I think I've read pretty much everything that's available in public, read or listened to about that, as well as some private stuff. Um, And... So I have a private stuff on meaning that. like what people privately told you. You mean right? Gotcha. Right. I thought it might be interesting to hear you tell me what you, how you see that situation now, and compare that with how I see that situation coming to it mm-hmm. now as an outsider. Yeah. If you want, that's okay. If you I've don't, been... we can like cut at the, no, <laughs> the beginning. Of no, the no, no, it's okay. I I have to get I have to get good and better at how I answer that. But ultimately, I got into a Twitter fight that devolved. The way I view it now today in November 2021 is in 2015, I got into a Twitter fight that devolved into like more Twitter fights that devolved into me harassing a few people, uh, namely like Ella Dawson, Ashley Manta, and, and Dirty Lola. Um, and also from that, like pissing off some people who tried to help and tried to like be a middle person and talk to me. And and I pissed off and burnt a lot of bridges doing that. And, and then because of all that and how public it was, a perception of me was out there, which then I believe informed other interactions I had online where I was immediately being perceived from that. And I did not recognize that because I was living situations in a vacuum. So not understanding why I was automatically being like, treated away and then like I didn't respond well to really anything and just acted like a big asshole. That that is I think my more succinct version of that. And it, it wasn't great. I wish I hadn't done that. It was fucking embarrassing. It's basically what I saw. Oh thank I mean, God. I saw I, well and, and I mean <laughs> so what I tried to do when I was reading all about all of that and listening to people was remember you were twenty six. And I tried to remember what I was like when I was 26. And 
how I might have responded to some of that. I mean, I'll just tell you, you said I was, I, I look of ambiguous age, I've, I'm 46. So I'm 20 years older than you were at that time. Like, and so people in that age group to me now are really, really young. <laughs> That's where I'm oriented when I see people in that age group, even people who may be doing shitty things. Because the fact is, when I was 26 years old, I little, did a lot of <laughs> really dumb and shitty and harmful things. Those things were not recorded on the internet thankfully. Um, Those things were not the subject of public discussion. I had the sort of grace of being able to live the, um, through the mistakes of my 20s in an era where not everything we all did was recorded. You're sure there's not a VHS tape floating around (laughs) somewhere? (laughs) Well, I mean. (laughs) A little cassette, a little mixtape. In someone's basement? No. <laughs> so you know, whatever I what I, I what what I will say is that I didn't see anything that happened that I thought was significantly worse than the worst stuff that I got up to in my twenties that everyone forgot about, and then I got to move on from. And I really like. I can't imagine what it would be like to have that stuff keep coming up for me for years and years and to have to keep explaining it, to have to keep reliving it, to have to not know if someone has heard about it, to not know if it's make, it's if it's influencing people's decisions about uh, being on my, uh, on their podcasts. Right. Yeah. So I, I felt for you, honestly. And that's why I say the thing, the specific things that actually happened don't even matter that much to me. Um, what matters to me is who you are now. And you've been, you know, pretty decent to me for the most of the time we've been talking, except for that one glitch we talked about. Yep. But, you know, you were decent about that too. So I do believe that there is a role for call outs, that there are times when we need to speak openly about harm that's happened and name names. I try to be very cautious about when and how I engage in that. Um, I also wish that we had, while I think we need to be able to talk more openly about harm, I wish that we could also find a way to allow people to move on. (laughs) Yeah. And like, I, I mean, one, I was, I was so really, I think like when you said like, that's about how I saw, I like uh, accidentally blurted a, 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 oh, oh, good. Uh, Cause I, <laughs> because it's been really hard for me to figure out a way to, to say it with, while taking ownership and saying what it was and not like downplaying, but not going like falling on 17 swords about it. And that's been hard to do succinctly. Cause it's, you know, it's a thing I very easily can kind of tailspin about and, and trigger stuff. Cause I'll be honest. And this, I, I like, I am traumatized by that and the fallout of that something of my own making. I, but like I'm traumatized by, it. and only really back in the spring when I actually sat and reread Ella's post in particular, um, like, or at least like the main post, that was the first time I sat there and, and legitimately read because I'd seen her. I had, I had stumbled upon some tweets of hers from like March. And then back in May, I actually sat down and I like I reread the thing. And I was like, wow, like I know I'm traumatized by it. Maybe, maybe she's not overreacting. 
maybe she really is traumatized by it. Maybe she like, okay. So then once I explored that space, like I, I got definitely like a, a, a way more empathetic understanding of it all. And that's when it, the last several years I've, ha- I've taken more ownership of like what I did, but I think only this year have I really tapped into like what, how she may have been feeling that day. And I don't have blog posts from like, you know, Lola and Ashley to read, but I could probably in a similar vein. So, um, or, you know, I, you know, somewhere in that world. So, um, yeah, it's been tough because it does always, it does come up a lot. Or if I'm nervous that the person knows, I like, I don't know how they feel until somebody tells me type of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. so I mean, I think that's why I felt uh, particularly appreciative in the moment when you said that you were giving me a benefit of the doubt, because I also know others gave me a benefit of the doubt in the more like immediate months and years after that. And, and I, I didn't, I like let them down at some point or, or I did things in a weird way that was informed by that. And then therefore they kind of leaned on the side of, I guess I shouldn't have given him that benefit of the doubt. Yeah. I mean, I. I know I keep going back to the age thing, but it also to me seems important that some of those people who were disappointed in you are significantly older than you. And I think that maybe they had higher expectations of you as a peer than maybe were appropriate. Um, Like I I definitely see a a significant Mm -hmm. difference in maturity level there. Uh, A lot of people in their mid twenties have a much harder time with empathy then, you know, we, I, I, we, we get better at this as we get older. Um, it does take a long time to be able to develop empathy for people you've caused harm to. Mm. Um, you know, there, there are, there's harm that I did, you know, not in my twenties in my thirties that it took me years to be able to actually see, Oh shit. Like that was really like, I really fucked up there. Um, and, and I think that the way we approach sort of public account well we the way a lot of people it's common to approach sort of public accountability right now sort of requires this immediate understanding this immediate performance of the correct level of you know apologetics and uh and empathy that is just not the way people work mm-hmm. <laughs> and and doesn't allow time for that sort of slower maturation that um when we didn't live every moment of our lives in the public eye, we were maybe allowed to do a little bit more. Would you say that performance that like immediate, like in the, in the immediate time frame after a thing or a transgression happens, a call out happens, um, you know, when we see celebrities or politicians get called out about a thing, they come very close quickly back with a, a quote unquote, the correct script or as close to the correct script as like the people they consulted with said they did. Um, and, and maybe they didn't even actually have time to like ruminate on that. Like sometimes it's like, if you came back with a statement three days later for something that was pretty bad, how much time did you really spend? Especially when you're a busy, whatever person, like you got meetings, you got this, you got that, you may have got kids, you got, so when did you really sit down? Did did you commit three hours to thinking about it? I don't know if that's enough depending on the transgression. So I, I, I see something about that performative script. Like there's this urge to do whatever the thing is they want the unknown they let's just do it for them now so people stop yelling and i can move forward but then did you actually think and change on a thing is my thought yeah and i think that we're inclined to let people get away with that because we are so 
desperate to hear people take responsibility because we're not used to it. One of the notes that I took last night had to do with when we were talking about the Reed Mahalko process. Mm-hmm. And you had been talking about, you know, when you watched that go down, really wanting to see a model for how someone could deal with these kinds of accusations and sort of grow from them and move on from them. And something that I think we can say that Reed has clearly moved on from them. Um, and and I told you that I, I wasn't a huge fan of the Reed process. And, yeah. and, and that has nothing to do with at all with yeah. Reed himself, who I don't know. Um, but, but it's the, this is purely about the process. And I think that one of the things um, that troubled me about the process is, um, well, first of all, it did, did reveal what kind of person gets access to that kind of grace and that kind of benefit of the doubt and that kind of work to restore their reputation and who doesn't. And you said that last night and, and I wanted to almost uh, clarify, you know, when you said that you mean, do you mean because of his stature in the community? Do you, are you saying that based off of like maleness and whiteness? Like, what do you mean by the, who gets to have access to that? Well, all of the above. I mean, mm-hmm. it was his, his social capital, his, his standing in the community, even access to financial resources mm-hmm. to pay coaches and pod members. And, but I think also, I mean, it was a very effective public relations exercise. I mean, it was, it was crisis comms in a lot of ways. And, and I have, you know, I, I am sure it was sincere and intent, um, mm-hmm. but he is a skilled educator and communicator and he did and said the right things, um, you know, not, right away in the Daily Beast article, but certainly after the Daily Beast article came out. But I also think that like, I was highly invested in that process as well, for different reasons. You know, I had watched men be called out over and over again, and not take responsibility and not do anything to fix it. And I was like, okay, here, this is happening. He's he's taking responsibility. And now we all get to see what this actually looks like. A lot of people had the their own investment in that process of things they wanted out of it, including there were people who built professional reputations as accountability facilitators or coaches or consultants in that process. Um, And then so Reed is like their CV for, for that. Yeah. Oh yeah. In all of this, everybody needing something out of the process, the people who got forgotten and left behind, I think were really the people who had experienced the original harm. Mm-hmm. And I think that they they got lost in it. And and some of them have been very vocal about having gotten lost in it and how the process was. It was never set up to serve them. And it didn't serve them, many mm-hmm. of them. Um, and I think that's a real problem. And so while I really, I understand the sort of like hunger for wanting to know how to do things better, um, you know, much to my own heartbreak, I don't think that that process serves as a model for how we do that. Do you do you think that in the process that Franklin chose not to really do, do you feel like a lot of people got lost in your shadow as the possibly more well-known uh, victim in all that? Not to so, insinuate that you try to yeah. take up any more space, but rather simply you're Eve Ricker co-author of more than two and a lot of them were um, you know, synonymous anonymous people. I don't, I don't want to speak for them. Um, Mm -hmm. I've seen no evidence that that is, is true. I mean, behind the scenes, we do a lot of checking in with each other to see, you know, who wants to, who wants to 
speak who wants to, you know, we did a couple of podcasts where five of us were together. Everyone was invited to be on those, those podcasts and the people who wanted to be got there. So people have chosen the level of visibility they want. Um, couple of other people have, um, you know, revealed their identities publicly. It's, um, you know, some people really wanted to be protected. Um, so we've just been trying to be very mindful of how much, uh, people want to put into things uh, and how much and what they want to get out of that. And to my knowledge, we've been able to do that pretty well. Um, I do think there was a situation early on in the process um, before the survivors as a group took things over where similar to the read process, there were a lot of people involved who had sort of other things that they wanted to get out of it as well. And that really, uh, again, we kind of got lost. The survivors kind of got lost in it for a while, um, which was a shame. What would you have wanted to see from Franklin after that call out process or or after the call out, I should say, you know, like what could have brought you what, like, what are some minimal things that could have brought you at least like a basic level of peace early on in the process? Um, I kind of made a personal list for myself of those things like what would what are the sort of like what's the minimum what's the um you know sort of best possible outcome and then what would be like you know pie in the sky kind of you know amazing thing that could happen um I can't even remember what the bare minimum was I mean it would have been nice for him to acknowledge that like all these other people (laughs) exist um and I mean anything other than what he did (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> pretty much like like the, the, the i i did not expect him to concoct a conspiracy conspiracy theory where like somehow i'm pulling all of these people's strings and none of it's real like to to be able to show some level of in, uh, empathy that like you know these people are real and their stories are real and they maybe had like different experiences uh than than him uh in the, these relationships um we had so the list of asks that we had developed that the survivor pod was supposed to send to the accountability pod, uh, but didn't included having him be assessed by a program uh, that specifically deals with abusive men. So we weren't even saying like, you need to go into a program and get treatment. We were saying, go get an assessment, go, you know, provide this information to them. You, tell you don't think us, that guy would have tested out of it. Like for what you what people can say about him, he seems like a fairly intelligent guy who could like, you know, answer the right questions and something like that. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Uh, I, you know, judging by how he behaved on your podcast, I'm really not sure he could have, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> and, and those and those people are trained, you know, you didn't even have training, but yeah, good. I was just going to say, like, <laughs> he did, I think I said this, like, in the monologue or whatever, dude showed up wearing the ears. Mm-hmm. Was was not expecting that. That was- Oh, uh, really? I, no, no, had no idea. Oh, he wears them everywhere. I, I had to, you, you have to understand what it took for me to sit across from, like, a incredibly grown-ass man wearing bunny ears for two hours talking to him like he wasn't wearing bunny ears. That's, would, that's a level of patience that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, 
he, I, I occasionally had, you know, when we were in business together and we had meetings with like venture capitalists and things, and I would occasionally <laughs> have to remind him Please. not to wear the bunny ears to the meetings with the venture capitalists, which I'm sure now is an example of how I controlled his clothing. <laughs> Oh, well, see, I mean, that was that was the thing, you know, he would say things and I'd just be like, I I will hold space for metaphysical possibilities, but I have a feeling like you're using extreme language. Like, like when he says like you physically assaulted him, I'm like, mm. all the things that we learn about like consent and me too and survivors say that like we're supposed to hold space for accusations, but I have a feeling like she put her hand on your shoulder once and you're going to call it assault. Like there, like, like when, when you heard that, was there, did you, do you know what he's talking about when he talks about that? Um, so this actually is a good segue back to a point I wrote down that I wanted to make about earlier part of our conversation. So um, I have admitted publicly uh, that in 2013, when we were writing more than two, I broke his Q-tip case. That happened. I did that. Uh, He had a plastic Q-tip case. So, And you're you're walking the streets today? (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) I did not realize who I was speaking to. Oh, my gosh. Um, it's in like part two or three of my testimony, I think. Um, so we were, we were writing more than two. We were in the cabin. We had an argument and I, I got angry and the way I dealt with it was by leaving the room. Like I thought I was supposed to do to go cool off. I went to, this was a four story cabin. So I went to a different part of the cabin where, yeah, it's the word cabin is sort of, it's like a wooden (laughs) palace kind of thing. I went to a part of the cabin where I was isolated. He could not hear me to calm down. I screamed into a pillow and then um, I went to the washroom to clean up and he had a um, soft sided toiletry case on the counter that I believed was empty. And I just, I, I punched the case and cause I was still, you know, and turned out it wasn't empty. It had a plastic Q-tip case inside of it, which broke. And so We're later, Q-tip, by Q-tips, we mean the things I put in my ear that yes. I buy for three ninety nine. So it was like a travel I- case, yeah. So, but the case was like a travel case that cost would cost maybe like six ninety nine on Amazon or something. Okay, I think um, in my wallet I might have some singles. I think we could probably take care <laughs> so, of this whole thing right now. I got four. I got four dollars. Right, I, we're almost there. <laughs> so this is this is the source. So that happened, right? It was a shitty thing to do. Like, it was a real thing that I did. Uh, I have no excuse for it. It was an accident in the sense that I did not intend to break anything. It didn't happen in front of him. So it's not like one of those cases. Eve, let's just take this. Let's pretend this was the worst version of this where you meant to break a Q-tip case. Even then, (laughs) we can still. Right. I know. I absolve you. I choose to do so. But please continue. So it didn't come up again for almost five years until he, uh, you know, our very last couples counseling session where he tried to convince our counselor that I had been abusing him for all this time. And his example was that I flew into rages and smashed his things. And so this whole Eve flies into rages and smashes my property. It's a Q-tip case. <laughs> it's a Q-tip case. <laughs> so, and like, it just... Come like 
So yes, there's a real thing and I, that I can't excuse away, but this idea that like I have to be penalized for it forever because I broke a Q-tip case and now a violent person like is, I mean, that's one of the things, so the, the, the tie-in was not specifically about the Q-tip case, but that, um, but as an example of like people who are emotionally abusive, one of the things that they will do is hold those little things over you forever um, that like, and not let you move on from them. So this idea that you have to be like infinitely accountable for a thing forever is a, is a tool of emotional blackmail and, and sometimes emotional abuse. And I do think that that's sometimes something I see happening in the way we talk about accountability. Like sometimes accountability is like something like, I don't actually think that we need to like fully own up to every single mistake that we made. Sometimes we're just allowed to like things to ourselves. God, I wish I'd handled that differently and like try to do better next time. Um, and this idea that is prominent in some circles that like, Every mistake we need we make needs to be like processed in this big way. Um, I actually think is is causing harm and and especially uh, in people who have already experienced forms of bullying or emotional abuse can be very triggering and and harmful and and keep us stuck in patterns that I think we need to move out of. What I mean, what was it like to hear that? To hear, I mean, I forget if you said you read like you read it or you heard it. I was really uh, anxious about the podcast, uh, not knowing when it was going to come out or what was going to be said on it. Um, I appreciated that you were doing your due diligence. Um, just for those who are listening to this and don't know the background, Billy did reach out to um, Louisa and to Kali for some fact checking uh, before and after the interview, I think. Um, and um, I remember, I don't want to go into detail about this because again, memory's fuzzy, but some okay. of your questions did make me a little worried when it came out, ultimately, I guess I feel like it was a net positive. You, you got him to show a side of himself that he doesn't like people to see very much, you know? Uh, I don't know how you did that, but you did. Um, and, I, and I think really probably he was expecting you to be a lot more uh, – I think he was expecting a much easier interview than he got. Mm-hmm. Um and you did a, you did get him on record in a couple of really on a couple of really significant lies um, that are helpful to me to have on record as lies. So there's also that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you um, a, an embarrassing story from my twenties. Oh, um, are you sure you want <laughs> so, this on the record? It will be well, yeah, out there I mean, then on the internet. <laughs> I know. I thought about it, um, but. Um, uh, in solidarity, maybe. Um, so I was, I was younger. I was, I was 19 or 20 when this happened. Um, but, um, I, I studied in Central America for a year through a, um, international exchange program. And as part of our studies where we were required to produce a course journal, uh, with our writings. And I wrote an essay, um, that was, and I actually think that this was published. I think we had like a little newsletter that just went around to the other students. I think it was published in the newsletter. I wrote this just horrifically racist essay. Like it was all like manifest destiny and like vanishing Indian and like all of these tropes and stereotypes. It was horrible, like really, really. And I thought it was like so enlightened and so, you know, <laughs> and, 
And that was like 1996. <laughs> so like couldn't even be put on a web page, thank goodness. A few years later, I realized just how bad it was. And so all of these course journals, they're bound and they're put in the library at the center. So I went back there to when I did my master's degree. I did my I also did my research in the same the same place. And um, so I went to visit the school and I went into the library and I stole my journal. Uh, so, so that nobody would evidence. ever. I stole the evidence so nobody would ever read the racist thing that I wrote. Unless there was some racist nope. kid in 2020 who was like, "No, I am still I." And they and then you don't want them to go find it and cite you in their footnotes. Right. Be like, no, this is where I'm getting. <laughs> it's gone. It's gone. Like that is. Did you, that now, was, did you, you burn know, it, or is in is it like in the <laughs> attic? Uh, I actually don't know where it is. <laughs> that is legally the right answer. Good job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I wrote, so I wrote this question down like very early on in, in us uh, chatting here. And what is it that you want to define you? Oh, gosh. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if I want any one thing to define me. <laughs> um, but I feel like the work that I'm doing in publishing right now is the most important work that I'm doing. Um, so, and both, you know, I, I own Thorn Tree Press, um, which just published Polysecure, which I think is an incredibly important book. You know, I, I mentioned to you on the phone, I, I also, I have a day job uh, in publishing. Uh, I publish very different kinds of books um, there, but I also feel like the work that I'm doing there um, is, is really important. Um, you know, I, books can be revolutionary. You know, books are like uh, every, every, when I publish a book, that book could last for hundreds of years. And the ideas in that book could, you know, inspire someone, you know, an activist or, you know, a leader or someone who uh, is going to make a difference. And, you know, I want to make sure that uh, I'm doing things as, as well as I can and that the ideas that I'm facilitating getting out in the world are, are ones that will will help and not hurt. You know, I haven't always made the best judgment on that. So, mm-hmm. uh, which brings me back to we never finished. Um, you were asking me like, what outcome would I have liked to have seen from the process with that guy? Mm-hmm. Um, my pie in the sky that I wrote, whereas like, if everything goes like the best it possibly can go, which is like, you know, he engages in this process, he learns. There's some sort of like, re- you know, restorative circle or something that happens. The way I would know that that had been a success would be that we could work together to produce a revised edition of more than two that improves on all of the stuff that was wrong in the first edition. So that was my sort of like, this is, this is the, the outside dream. And I never really imagined that could happen. But when I was like listing like what, what could, would be the best possible outcome, that was it. So it's pretty sad that that can't happen. It is sad that that can't happen. It warms my heart. And that was what I was, I was hoping your pie in the sky was, was not Franklin needs to banish forever, but that Franklin mm-hmm. engaged in the process and comes out the other end of that machine in a way that like it could be possible to work with him on that. Yeah. I think that's- I mean, a- could you imagine? Like, could you, like of all of the, you know, I look, when I look at- these attempts that have been made, like the read process and like what we've tried to do with Franklin, like, could you imagine 
to see someone actually try to like you had this group of of people who were ready to engage with him, ready to help him and real concrete things that could be done. And yeah, the healing that would be represented and the growth that would be represented by a new edition of more than two that, that had been collaboratively done would just be so phenomenal. And it's one of the reasons I was so just, I look at the path that he has chosen to take and it's so boring and unoriginal. <laughs> and I'm just like, you could have done so much better than this. And you did that. Mm-hmm. You just did. It was like, come on, dude, you, you, you can come up with a better story than this. But and it, yeah, know. it's in something I mentioned on the phone. I've said on this podcast a lot in that like, Yes, everybody could use this, but, uh, you know, there is one half of the population that maybe needs it more, but that, you know, men do not have a pathway for fucking up, not to a criminal extent that if you believe in a criminal justice process that they'd have to go to, even though we do not all believe in that process. And that's okay for another for another podcast. But like there is no path for fucking up, especially if it was in a public way, going away figuring it out and coming back and 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 it's okay cuz there I think there's still this fear and I think it's a valid fear in the present climate of oh no if I fuck up do I am I done for forever it's like there needs to be a way to come back and not simply like go Al Franken like yeah hey, I'll just go away for a minute I'll slowly like start a podcast this that, and the other thing not that we and, and we don't know what you did like we don't know like what you engaged with like really, I I do think like that's a that's a book that needs to happen at some point, so that others can at least try to do better. I know a lot of guys who want to do better and they don't know how, and it's like we can say, hey, that's tough cookies for you. Figure it out yourself. Talk to other men. Do emotional labor amongst yourself. That's all well and good, but like at the end of the day, do we practically want some shit to change concretely? Well, then like. Mm-hmm give some hints like we need like they, they, they need some hints uh we you go to university and you take a class and they give you a book to read and like sometimes you get the book sometimes you get you think you get the book and you get it differently or you get it differently than intended and sometimes you're just fucking lost and you're like hey teach help <laughs> and that's why that's why we go right we go to learn how to interpret certain texts so i really hope at some point like we will get to see a good public process of that. I don't want to be the guy to write that book, um, but I hope that it gets written at some point. And for, you know, like I said, whether, however one feels about like the read process, something I brought up last time was just that like, at minimum, we could all agree that like the way Reed engaged with it and the way frankly engaged with it, vastly different. And I'm, I'll be willing to say one is at least better than the other. I think that, um, the phrase a way back needs a little bit of nuancing Mm -hmm. because I think that that's one of the things that um, kind of throws these things off is that, um, I mean, first of all, there's a difference between, you know, making an ignorant mistake or, or screwing up in one relationship versus a long-term abuse of power, which is what we see in a lot of the situations that rise to call out levels like Mm -hmm. Louis C.K., for yeah. example, I think that too often uh, when it happens to m- men with power, uh, the idea of a way back is not how do I repair the harm I've done and like 
have a way back to humanity and community. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how do I get back to the position that I lost because of this call out? Right. And, and I think that very often when there's been a long-term abuse of power, that way back needs to include either long-term or permanent removal of that power. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is not necessarily a punishment. And a lot of people see that as a punishment. Uh, and, And so I just think that that's a thing that confuses the conversation yeah, often. Yeah. Um, because I think that people should always be able to keep their humanity and people should always be able to uh, be given an opportunity to, to do better and to, uh, you know, right their wrongs and, and in some cases just to move on and rebuild. But I don't always think that people should be able to get back positions of power that they've abused. Yeah, look, you anyone can buy a microphone and start a podcast. No one can take like, but maybe you don't need to be CEO of that thing. Like that's, you know, like maybe you were never worthy of it, and it's okay. Like <laughs> you can still do your thing. But I appreciate that that you know you hold space for a conversation uh, like this, and I appreciate that you you took notes on <laughs> on on a on a like a you know 20, 20 30 minute phone call with me um so you know again i uh, i appreciate that cuz i have not i do not always get to experience that i don't know that whether or not i deserve that but but i i thank you for your time and where can people go to find you find your work and find the books that y'all are publishing at thorn tree press you're welcome to uh shout out you shouted out poly secure anything else you happen to be proud of in the moment um anything else you want people to to go find about you to define you beyond some stuff from the past so um i'm on twitter at eve rickert um my blog is brighter than sunflowers.com but i'm not very active with it Thorn Tree Press is just thorntreepress.com. We didn't publish anything this year, but we were, we are going to start publishing again in 2022. Apart from PolySecure, the thing that I am most proud of from the last couple of years is um, a book associated with my day job uh, that is called, um, it's called Spirits of the Coast. And it is a book about orcas. And it is just like, I, I think it, is in definitely ranking for one of the most beautiful things I've ever been involved in producing beautiful in terms of, you know, the design and artwork, but also in terms of like the importance of the information and the messaging. And it was just, I worked with a really extraordinary woman who was a guest editor on it. And when it was, it finally came out, I was just like, this is so important. And so I didn't know what it was going to be when I started working on it. Um, but there is so much in there that uh, speaks to my heart um, and the things that are important to me and that I think uh, have a lot to teach other people. So I would love for people to pick up that book, which has nothing at all to do about polyamory. <laughs> um, it's about orcas. So <laughs> on, may, on my gravestone, may it say uh, a poly and a leader of poly and orcas. <laughs> Um, Eve, this was wonderful. Thank you again. And, uh, you know, why don't you go ahead and say goodbye to everybody? Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. You got thoughts? You got feelings about this week's episode with Eve Rickert? You got some uh, got some opinions on Billy's just horrendously problematic internet past? We'd love to know what you think in the champagne room. 
Come join us in the episode discussion channel or one of our many very fun channels. We got uh, Pets, Pets, Pets. Guess what that one's about? It's free to join us, and we'd love you to introduce yourself at manhorpod.com slash discord. You can follow or shout me out on Twitter at TheBillyPresida. I'm also on Instagram at BillyIsPresida. I'm loving seeing people share uh, that the Manhor podcast made your Spotify unwrapped. Oh, gosh, that warmed my goddamn heart. So thank you to all of y'all who uh, who have the Man Whore podcast in your top three. I'm not selfish. I don't need to be number one. I get it. I just you know, I, I want to meddle. That's all. <laughs> uh, I'm very excited to announce this. I have released a 26-minute pussy-eating video with the uh, delicious past Man Whore podcast guest, Angel Amore. If you ever wanted to know what it looks like when I'm going down on a, a beautiful twat, you want to go get this video, you can go get that at my OnlyFans, OnlyFans.com slash Billy. And if you want to get a free podcasting consultation with yours truly, sign up for Libsyn's hosting services today and use promo code Billy, B-I-L-L-Y at Libsyn. L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Take a screenshot of you using the code or using my link. Shoot me an email. We'll arrange the call. I'll answer all your cues. Uh, and last but certainly not least, hey, if you have feelings about what you read about me, uh, possibly today or ever, hey, you are welcome to email me your thoughts. I'm very, I'm very receptive these days. To the criticism, uh, you can email me your thoughts or comments or questions at manwarpod at gmail.com. And uh, I want to end with, you know, shout out to the victims of the tornadoes that touched down. I hope if you were impacted, I hope you're recovering. I hope you are safe. I hope you have people in your life to help out. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Stay boosted. Stay slutty. Dogecoin to the moon? Ready to buy the dip? Start investing in cryptocurrency today with Coinbase. And you can get $10 worth of Bitcoin for free after signing up at manhorpod.com slash crypto. Come on, how much longer is this fiat thing going to last?